it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas everywhere we go, right? Uh, just from show of hands, let me kind of see who we're dealing with here today. Raise your hand if your house is decorated for Christmas already. All right, the Heller House is, uh, we've had our walls and halls decked for a couple weeks now. We love Christmas. We got married at Christmas, so it brings back lots of good memories. Uh, can you raise your hand if you've already been listening to Christmas music? All right, this is a Christmassy crowd. The nine o'clock service, they weren't, they weren't sure yet. Uh, last question, we'll see who the uh, real weirdos are out there. Tell me if you have all your Christmas shopping done. Raise your hand. Okay, right there, all right, okay. Well, congratulations, I haven't started yet. But anyway, we are excited about the Christmas season here at Crossroads. Literally 14 months ago, we had a conversation about what Christmas should look like uh, in 2021. And we determined that based on what we knew then at the end of 2020, we might be ready for some really good news at the end of 2021. I don't know about you, but like we have uh, had enough to deal with in our world, whether it's uh, the pandemic, the political tensions, the social tensions. I mean, maybe whatever's going on in your life, you could really use some good news. We might have all been waiting for some good news already. Like maybe you've been hitting refresh on your internet browser, waiting for your electronic medical records to show the latest test of COVID that you just took. Maybe you're just waiting for good news, right? Hopefully it'll be negative. Maybe you keep a close eye on your phone for a text or maybe a phone call because you're expecting the arrival of a new baby in your family or maybe the outcome of a surgery that your family loved one has been going through. Maybe you're waiting for the grades to post. Maybe you're ready for the outcome of an interview. Maybe it's the status of your return flight. Maybe it's the final score of a game or the outcome from some, gener- some conversation. In a time of frustration and anxiety, uncertainty, and even struggle, where can we find some hope? Where can we find some peace? Where can we find some good news? Well, we strongly believe that there is good news in Jesus. He came into our world at a point of history when there were some real strong parallels, some polarization, some struggle, some, some adversity being faced. And when he arrived, people were overjoyed at his arrival. Jesus is not just some good news. We believe that he is the best news. And we want to focus during this Christmas season on who he is and what he means to our life, not just at Christmas, but every single day, all year long. Over this Christmas season, we together as a church family are going to follow the moments of Jesus' arrival into our world through the historical moments that are captured by a reliable source. He was actually a physician in the first century. His name is Luke. And Luke carefully and intentionally recorded the historical events, and he speaks to the spiritual significance of Jesus' arrival in his day, for our day, as well as for all eternity. If you have a copy of the Bible, whether a hard copy or electronic version, or if you want to use the Bible in the seat back in front of you, I'd encourage you to open it to the New Testament, and we're going to look at Luke chapter 1. Luke is about two-thirds the way through the Bible. It's one of the four Gospels. The Gospels are simply a record of Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and the word gospel actually means the word good news. Luke is this human author of one of these four books. And he begins his account of the life of Jesus with an introduction and explains how and why he went about documenting Jesus' life. Look with me in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Luke says, 
many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from whom were first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of these things of which you have been taught. Luke says he's gone to great lengths to capture the life events of Jesus and to share them with a friend named Theophilus, who was most likely a, an official Roman, wealthy, a, a wealthy Roman official. Now, this name Theophilus actually means friend of God. And many people think it's literally a person, but also it can be symbolically every one of us who has a sincere desire to love God. The words that Luke records are to teach us about Jesus, to strengthen the faith of all of us who are pursuing God. Luke begins his account of the life of Jesus with the birth narrative of a relative of Jesus whose name is John. Luke notes that when Herod was ruling in Judea, which was probably about 37 to 4 BC, there was a priest there in Judea named Zechariah. Zechariah was married to the daughter of a priest whose name was Elizabeth. Listen to how they were described, Luke 1 verse 6. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God. Observing the laws, the Lord's command and decrees blamelessly. Now, this does not mean that these two people were perfect. It just means that they were faithful in their pursuit of God. They were pursuing righteousness in their obedience to the law. They were worshiping and practicing their faith humbly. This description begs the question, how do people describe you? On the way home from Thanksgiving, what were your relatives saying about you, describing you? How did they experience you over the time they spent with you around the Thanksgiving dinner? It might be a haunting question to ask. Luke gives us another really important bit of information about Zachariah and Elizabeth. They were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. They were both very old. Maybe most of us can relate with this statement about these two because we've been seeking God in our lives, but we've ran into a wall. And the wall for Zechariah and Elizabeth was childlessness. Despite their faithfulness to God, their desire and constant petition for a child had gone unfulfilled. Their impeccable priestly credentials and spiritual fervor did not guarantee life's blessing. The people of Israel, they believed that Having a child was a blessing from the Lord. And if you did not have a child, you were actually under punishment. They believed that having children was an obedience to the command of God back in the garden to Adam and Eve to go bear fruit, be multiplying. I want to uh, note that the couple suffered personal and social disgrace because Elizabeth could not have a child. Can you imagine the sense of guilt, of just pressure, even the sense of failure that Elizabeth felt? Can you imagine how Zachariah must have felt, just wanting to defend his wife, wanting to provide everything for her, but felt so helpless? I want to be very clear that Scripture does not indicate that Elizabeth and Zechariah's condition of being childlessness, having no child, was not a punishment from God. There's nowhere in Scripture that it indicates that this was a punishment from him, from the, the society around them had placed all kinds of inferences upon them, but that did not reflect God's heart for them. They had, this had to be something that they prayed for 
over and over again. And yet now they were old and they just resigned themselves to just endure the disgrace for the rest of their life. It begs me to ask another question. Is there something in your life that you've waited for and prayed for over and over and yet still haven't experienced or received? Maybe it's restoration with a friend, maybe a former coworker or relative. Maybe it's a different job, a better source of income. Maybe it's a healthier work environment. Maybe you're waiting for a wayward child to return to his or her faith or freedom from that addiction that has wreaked all kinds of havoc in your life up to this point. Maybe it's strength against the pressure you feel to condone the lifestyle of a friend, or maybe it's the pressure you feel from your parents to perform or to live up to their expectation. Maybe it's healing from cancer or some other health crisis. I want you to know that you can take courage by knowing God's heart. God wants to give good good gifts to his children. He doesn't always choose to do it in our way or on our timetable, but we can and should trust his heart, his timing, his sovereignty, as well as I think that's what Zach and Lizzie did. Let's keep reading to see where the good news shows up in their life. Follow me in verse eight. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by Lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for burning incense had come, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. As a priest, Zechariah would serve two full weeks, leaving his home, going to Jerusalem to serve and do his duties there. That was in addition to the three festivals that were celebrated every year by the Jewish people. There was an estimated 18,000 priests in Judea during this time. So these special assignments like lighting incense at the altar of incense, they came by lot, by choice. It'd be kind of like on the playground when I grew up going hot potato or big potato. One potato, two potato, three potato, four, five potato, six potato, seven potato, more, right? And whoever landed on more was either captain or out. Well, this was just like that, but much more spiritual, obviously, right? Well, when Zechariah was chosen for this occasion, it was a once-in-a-lifetime moment. Because he was chosen, he would never, ever have this opportunity or responsibility again. And the holy place where he went to enter to burn this incense was an amazing place. The temple was made up of the holy place and the most holy place. And in the holy place, it was covered with gold from floor to ceiling. All the walls were covered in gold. And also, there were three really important items there. There was the table of showbread. And that's where there was bread that represented God's presence with his people. There was also this candlestick that had seven arms. And that was lit daily and kept, kept lit so that it would resemble God's presence throughout the day. And then there was this altar of incense. And you would burn incense there, representing the prayers that were going up to God. And as Zechariah was burning that incense, all the other worshipers were out in the courtyard praying. This happened in the morning every day and happened at the end of every day. And and I just want to make this note. That's probably a really good pattern for us to follow. We we would encourage you to pray when you first get up and and pray before you go to bed. That's just a good practice. It's a way to experience more of God in your life and to invite him into your life more. We wouldn't describe that as a a rule of life. And that might be... uh, terminology that's unfamiliar with you. It's a good spiritual practice. In fact, it's a a picture of what it looks like to be with God. 
you want to find out more about that, in the roadmap, it's a, a tool we've created to help all of us live and love like Jesus more by being with God, being with others, and being sent. And in the being with others, or excuse me, being with God section, there's a whole list of resources and action steps you can take to actually develop a rule of life or develop spiritual rhythms and practices that help you experience more of God in your life. Well, where Zechariah found himself is right where God wanted him to be. Let's look what happened in verse 11. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah. Yes, we're waiting for Zechariah and wondering, what was taking him so long? When he came out, he could not speak to them. He realized, I think I skipped over a part. I want to go back. Yes. Is that right? Yes, okay, there we go. Verse 11 is where I wanted to be, not in 620. Okay, verse 11, here we go. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I always chuckle when I read in scripture, when an angel appears to a person, they're startled, they're afraid. And the angel's first words to them is, don't be afraid. I mean, I've never seen an angel, but if I did, I'm not sure what would happen. I think I might feel just like Zechariah. And I'm sure the angel would say to me, it's okay. Don't be afraid, right? Well, the angel brought good news to Zechariah. God had heard his prayer. Now, you might assume what Zechariah might have been praying that day. Dear God, please give us a child. But many scholars don't think that's what Zechariah was actually praying for in this moment. In this moment, he was probably uttering a prayer that was more like, God, save your people. God was bringing good news for Elizabeth and Zechariah, but it was also for everyone else. And what the angel says to Zechariah proves this. Their story was part of a much bigger story. I'm really excited during this Christmas season that we're offering a resource to families, to everybody who calls Crossroads home. It's an Advent resource. And one version of this resource is a set of building blocks that all have 25 days that you can follow as a family and every day correlates with a story from the Bible to show you how the whole story of the Bible fits together. It might be great for your children, but it also might be great for all of us to understand how God's story is revealing just who Jesus is, not just at Christmas, but throughout our entire life. If you don't have young children at home, I'd encourage you to pick up a copy of the devotional. Those were available out in the atrium both today. We have just a few left, so I'd encourage you to grab one today. All of it kicks off on December the 1st, just in a few days. It's a great way to picture what the whole story of the Bible is about and also to see your story in this big story. Zechariah and Elizabeth were going to have a child, a son, and the son would be given the name John. He was born for a special assignment to prepare the way for the coming Lord. 
The good news from the angel is loaded with significant hyperlinks, as we like to call them. They're just dots that are connected back to God's covenant with his people. The promises and prophecies of deliverance for God's people. And most importantly, the promise of a coming Messiah who would restore all things and reign forever. The angel made this very clear by many references. He said that the child would be named John. John, in definition, is that the Lord is gracious. It was just a helpful reminder of God's character. The angel said that this baby, John, would be great in the sight of the Lord. He was chosen for a specific, important role. And Jesus later said of John in John 7 verse, or Luke 7, verse 2, among all those born of a woman, there is no one greater than John. The angel said that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. The Holy Spirit is really the, the star of the whole birth narrative of both John and of Jesus. In fact, Luke, the Holy Spirit is focused on throughout his gospel accounts and even the book of Acts that he wrote as well. John is the only person in the New Testament that it is said of the Holy Spirit would be with him even from before he was born. And we see that happening in verse 41 of chapter 1. It's when his mom, Elizabeth, is pregnant, and she's visited by one of her relatives whose name is Mary, who was just told she was going to be pregnant as well by the same angel. Now, not the angel getting them pregnant, but the same angel giving them the news, okay? So Mary comes to visit Elizabeth, and when the baby inside of Elizabeth, who's John, hears Mary's voice, the baby leaps for joy. It's an indication that the Holy Spirit is already active, working in and through this baby named John. It said that he will bring many back to the Lord. The message that John preaches as he begins his ministry is a, is a message of repentance. And many people respond to his message and are baptized. It says that he will go before the Lord. His role was a forerunner, a fulfillment of a prophecy from Malachi chapter 3. John was, it was clear to John that he was not the Messiah, but he was there to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. He's also said that his ministry would be in the spirit of Elijah, another fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3, an indicator that the Messiah was soon to arrive, and the birth of this John was an early indicator that something big God was doing. Elijah's ministry was a call for repentance and also a return to the godliness and the covenant between them and God, as well as restoration of families that they would turn the hearts of fathers to their children and they were disobedient to the wisdom of righteousness. That was reflective in Elijah's ministry and also in John's. Maybe most importantly, that John was being born to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This was a prophetic declaration by the angel that this was not just good news for Zechariah and Elizabeth, but for everyone. Well, how did Zechariah respond to this great news? Well, look in verse 18 with me. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Men, you might write that down as just a good way to describe your wife. She's well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. 
Gabriel is one of the two angels given a specific name in scripture. The other one is named Michael. Gabriel declares that he stands in the presence of God and that the message he is giving Zechariah is straight from God. It can be trusted. Zechariah's response is shock, bewilderment, and even questioning. And that wasn't unique to him. There were many people in the Bible who questioned the message of good news when they received it. There was Sarai from the Old Testament who was also well in years and had not had a baby and Her husband, Abram, was told that she would have a baby, and when she heard that news, she laughed. There was another lady who had never had a baby. She was a virgin. Her name was Mary, and she questioned, how can this happen? Because she knew she was still a virgin. Many people who have been a recipient of good news in the Bible feel a little overwhelmed, maybe uncertain at the revolution of truth or maybe the special assignment given to them. You remember Moses, when he saw that burning bush, And he heard the voice of God saying, I'm sending you to Egypt to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. He's like, er, you got the wrong guy. Like, I'm not a good speaker, right? Then there was Saul in the Old Testament. When Samuel showed up to anoint him king of Israel, he's like, you've got the wrong guy. I'm from the very smallest clan in all of Israel. Isaiah, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, he says, woe to me. I'm a sinful man. I live among people with unclean lips. And then there was even Peter who said, Lord, get away from me. I'm an evil person when Jesus invited him to follow him. Well, Zechariah made a request that's not unique to him either. He asked for a sign to know that what the angel said would actually happen, which in itself is not wrong. There were many people throughout scripture who asked for a sign and received it from the Lord. There were people like Abraham and Gideon and Hezekiah. A sign was given to several people as proof that God is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he's going to do. A rainbow in the sky to Noah was a sign that said that God will never flood the earth in the same way. There was the fleece that was dry in the midst of a dew-saturated ground to prove to Gideon that God was true to his word. A virgin giving birth to its child was a sign from, from God that he would avenge his people and bring them out of captivity. That's just to name a few. And the sign that God gave to Zechariah was very obvious to him and others that God was up to something. Let's see how it plays out in verse 21. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was complete, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant, and for five months she remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown me his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Skip over to verse 57 now. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. And they said to her, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. 
Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. The good news that Gabriel gave to Zechariah came to fulfillment that day. The disgrace of being childless was removed. Many people think that Elizabeth stayed in hiding for five months so that when she made her first public appearance, it was obvious that she was going to have a baby, that God was up to something. And obviously, Zechariah remained mute until the day that the baby was born, and he obeyed the instructions from the angel to give the baby the name John. The good news was experienced both by Zechariah and Elizabeth, but also by everyone who saw what the Lord was doing. And everyone who saw that kept talking about it. They were curious about what was God going to do in the future through the arrival of this baby. Well, Luke ends this birth narrative of John by recording Zechariah, who was filled with the Holy Spirit and busts a song out of his lungs. I don't know about you, but do you ever find yourself singing when you get some good news? Let's look at Zechariah's song. It's recorded in verse 67. He said, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and rescued them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, Zechariah said of John, you'll be called a prophet of the Most High, and you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come up to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the path of peace. Zechariah's song is filled with praise and prophecy about how this good news would change the world. It's a declaration of the character of God, his faithfulness to his people, his promise to redeem and to restore his people, his power to save, his compassion to show mercy, his ability to equip people to serve him, his desire for us to, to live in holiness and righteousness his promise to send a savior and to guide us into all truth and peace. It's filled with good news. And Zechariah's song was a celebration of God's faithfulness. It can be our song too. God sees us. He knows us. He has promised to provide for us. He's established a covenant with us. He's opened up a path for us between us and him. He has shown us his mercy and grace. He's extended to us forgiveness and grace. He brings light to the darkest places of our lives. He wants us to be holy. He wants us to serve him. He wants us to experience life in him. He is bringing us good news. And Luke's trustworthy report sings forth this good news. After 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and New Testament, God chooses one special moment in history to act on behalf of his people in the form of two babies, one born to a really old woman who thought she would never have a child, and the other to a teenage mom who is yet to be married. This is the God we serve. 
who chooses, who chooses his time and then his way to bless his people in ways that we could never expect. His work of forgiveness and salvation, a work completing this covenant promises that he has made to us even a thousand years before John was born. This is the center of human hope. It's a hope based not on human power and ability, but on divine promises and miracles. This is good news. In a world that seems hopeless, maybe pressure-packed, on the razor-thin edge of pressure and stress all the time, filled with confusion, as well as all kinds of conflict, we could use this good news. And whether, whatever you might be facing, whether it's a wall that you can't get over, can't go around or go under, this might be good news for you, that God is capable to move, to act, to work. The good news is, is this, God is in control. He sees us, he's capable. He often accomplishes his will in unusual and in unexpected ways that aren't always according to our timetable or our wisdom. God is faithful to his promises. He works out his will according to his time, his perfect timing. And he's worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our adoration. I'm not sure what you might be going through and facing right now, but we all have something we might see as a wall, something we're asking God for, some unfulfilled longing that's much more than something we would ever put on a Christmas list or expect to find under the tree on December the 25th. Whatever that something is for you, I hope that you see from this moment in Zechariah and Elizabeth's life that there is good news. How can you and I experience this good news, you might ask? Well, let me give you some actions we can take. The first is this. We can learn to trust God's character and his power. Don't limit God by your thinking or by your actions. He's the most creative being in the entire universe, and he accomplished his will in ways that we might not expect. Let him surprise you. I love how the message translation captures Paul's words to the Ephesians, check these out. It says, God can do anything, you know, far more than you could ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams. He does it not by pushing us around, but by working within us. His spirit deeply and gently within us. Glory to God in the church. Glory to God in the Messiah, in Jesus. Glory down all the generations. Glory through all millennia. God's ability and willingness to work has been true in the past, it's true in the present, and it will be true in the future. Next, you can speak your desires to God in prayer. Prayer is not just some pious ritual that's carried out by religious people. Prayer is the direct access to God's ear as well as to his heart. He's available, and he wants to hear from your heart's desire. And he's promised to meet every need that we have, and he's proven it by giving us Jesus who was the greatest need we ever had. This is what Paul tells the Philippians. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. We can trust him, we can speak our desires to him, and we can take him at his word. Be patient as God works through faith. Although our circumstances can give us false readings about what's really going on, God's timing is always perfect. 
In spite of the circumstances, even the consequences, let God work out his will in your life. Romans 8, 31 and 32 reads, what shall we say then in response to all this? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? We need to look for the bigger story. It's so easy to get wrapped up in or fixated on what we see as that wall or mountain in front of us. And we fail to lift our eyes to what God is doing around us and what, how he is working. So lift your eyes to the bigger story that God is writing in your life and for others. Don't keep your eyes just on the problem. Paul tells the Corinthians this. Therefore, we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles, that's a perspective statement. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not over what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I want to encourage you to be attentive to how the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and prompting you. You might not receive an angelic visit right in front of you, but God's present, and he is speaking his message to you and for you. His word is filled with revelation about who he is, about who you are, and about how he feels about you and how he works. John says this, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, now we're children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Finally, I want to encourage you just to seek his grace and mercy through faith. His promise and his fulfillment of that promise to send a Savior in Jesus brings love and grace and forgiveness and salvation. Receive these things through faith and be filled with joy, hope, and peace. These are not just Christmas frills. These are things we can experience year-round, no matter who you are, no matter where you find yourself, no matter what you've done, because they are God's gift to give you as you are going through something and for all eternity. Paul tells Timothy, God has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. And this grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it's now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who's destroyed both death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Maybe you think the Lord has forgotten you. Maybe you feel like he's aloof to your situation. Well, he hasn't and he's not. He does impossible things for people every day, and who knows, you might just be next. So trust him. Keep faithfully living for him, patiently waiting for him to work, just like Zechariah and Elizabeth did. And when he shows up, give him all the praise and glory for what he does. Would you pray with me? God, we look around the world. We look even into the deep recesses of our heart, yeah, we find some darkness. We find places that we have unfulfilled expectations. We find 
disappointment, we find frustration, we find tension, we find just this uh, sense of where are you being asked? God, I'm grateful that you're big enough, you're strong enough, you're caring enough to see us, to know us, to hear us, God, to work for us. God, I know in this room there are people going through some tough stuff. The person I sat next to who just couldn't even sing just felt moved to tears because of what's going on in his life in the first hour. It grieves me still to this moment. And yet, God, I pray that if he heard nothing else when he was worshiping with us, he just heard that you love him, you have a plan for his life, and that you are working despite what he's facing. God, I pray that for anybody else who hears my voice today. God, I pray that each of us would find you worthy of our trust, worthy of our worship because of who you are, because how you're working. God, if we feel like we are distant from you, God, I pray that your presence would draw us close. I pray that if we have unfilled or unmet expectations, Lord, I pray that we would see that you're enough. God, I pray that we'd understand it's only by your grace and only by your mercy that we have anything. And that this world is never the source of our hope or our joy or our peace. That's only found in you. You've extended that to us through this baby born so long ago and yet is still reigning in heaven today. And so it's to him we look and through him we pray right now. Amen.